I'm Tash McGill. And I'm Vincent Herringer. And this is The Feed, a weekly wrap of the news, views and skews on New Zealand food, drink and everything in between. The feed is for those who grow food. The ones who make, harvest and forage. Who package, ship and sell food. Most importantly, for those who eat food and like to talk about it. So join us at thefeed.co.nz and now, welcome to The Feed Weekly. This week we look at an increase to excise taxes, the Outstanding New Zealand Food Producer Awards and the New Zealand Spirits Award. And we listen to the backstory of AF Drinks, the alcohol-free gin that was created by Lisa King of Eat My Lunch fame. And a big thanks to all of you who have joined us as subscribers to this podcast and our new weekly email. Now's the perfect time for me to ask you to rate and review the podcast. We'd love your feedback and it really helps others find the show. Tash, what have you been up to this week? Well, the New Zealand Spirits Awards on Friday night was a mighty fine shindig. Uh, the awards aim to celebrate and acknowledge, you know, like the best of New Zealand and international spirits. But certainly the big winners on the night were all local and homegrown. Lunatic and Lover took home the best New Zealand rum trophy, as well as the trophy for packaging and design. Roots Dry Gin from Marlborough took home not only best New Zealand gin, but best overall gin in category. That's right. See you later, Tanqueray, apparently. Huh. Uh, and um, I think we'll actually have a chat with Ben, um, the distiller from uh, Elemental and Roots, uh, coming up soon. Mm. And the Innovation Trophy went to a brand new just-launched product, a New Zealand-made white rum that's made with jaggery sugar and produced by the New Zealand Rum Company. Um, so a big night for rum, which is not surprising because I've been saying for a while now that it is, in fact, the year of rum. I do like a white rum. I also <laughs> quite like a, um, um, a white port. You ever had white port? Oh, white port is mm. delicious. Delicious with a tonic um, and a slice of cucumber. One of the best ports I ever had in my life, actually, was black sapote, um, which is a uh, slightly more tropical fruit. It was made in uh, far north tropical Queensland and then made into a port. Quite delicious. Mm. Oh, well, we, well, we shall come back to that. Well, I had a great weekend, very busy, but on Friday night I thought I would try uh, get some friends over and we'd try some Viognier, which is uh, not a common variety in New Zealand, but uh, I'd compare it probably to something like a Chardonnay or a Pinot Gris. It's quite lush with a hint of herbaceousness, uh, almost spicy. Uh, we tried just three, which was not not a large tasting, uh, two New Zealand and one Aussie, but there was a clear winner, Passage Rock Reserve from mm. Waiheke. Mm. Mm. Delicious, sensational. And uh, I wondered if our listeners might have a favourite Viognier. Do you want to tell us about it's? It's As I say, it's not a common variety, but I think that's got a growing fan base because it's a sensational grape. Uh, and if you do and you want to recommend one, send us a letter to editor at thefeed.co.nz and we'll read the best of your letters. And it doesn't just have to be about Viognier, but uh, we'll read the best and we'll discuss them. And of course, we are on all the socials on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, The Feed NZ. And sign up to our newsletter. That's enough bossy instructions. (laughs) Now for the news. Wellington hospitality venues are feeling the bite as the region remains at alert level two. Combined with the closure of the Trans-Tasman bubble, or at least the pause of the Trans-Tasman bubble, the level two restrictions hit Wellington hard uh, and the hospital sector hard over the weekend. Mark Davey, General Manager of Waitoa Beer with venues in Haitaitai and in the CBD, told RNZ 
that as soon as the Level 2 announcement was made, we were expecting about 40 to 50% drop in normal revenues, which is basically what happened. And venues in nearby Wairarapa, Wairarapa recorded a similar drop-off in bookings as people decided to stay home instead of heading over the hills to sunny Martinborough, etc. Hospitality New Zealand Chief Executive Julie White described the extension of the Level 2 restrictions as a kick in the guts for the sector. And Tash, just a reminder that government assistance is still available to businesses, including in the hospo sector, who can prove that they had at least a 30% drop in revenue or a 30% decline in capital raising over a seven-day period due to an increase in alert levels. Mm. On a brighter note, producers from Raglan to Wanaka were among the champions in this year's Outstanding New Zealand Food Producer Awards, with the Wairarapa's homegrown farm fresh meats named Supreme Champion 2021. It's the second year in a row that the Geisen Paddock Champion was also named Supreme Champion, and the second time homegrown fresh farm meats has been named Paddock Champion after winning for their gourmet lamb pack in 2018. Head judge Lorraine Jacobs said 2021 was an exciting year for the awards. Ten panels, each comprising of three knowledgeable and expert judges, ate, sniffed and drank their way through a record number of almost 300 entries, with the extremely difficult task of narrowing the field down to make the hard choices of the very best in each section. It's a tough job, but somebody has to do it. Good on you, Lorraine. (laughs) And... They said it was comforting to see that amongst the numerous clever food innovators and food producers, there are still many natural unadulterated products that shine, showing off just how good fresh from the farm or fresh from the sea New Zealand food is. Nice one. New Zealand tomato exports, however, to six countries were stopped after a disease was discovered on the crops. Pepinomasaki virus, or PEPMV, can affect the yield of plants and delay fruit growth, and it was found in an Auckland greenhouse in April and has spread to three other commercial sites. The virus, which is found in China, parts of Europe and in the Americas, is highly contagious and can be spread on crates, tools, clothing and on bumblebees. Bye, bumblebees. Uh, MPI notified Australia, Japan, Thailand, Fiji, Tonga and New Caledonia about the disease, uh, primarily because those countries are where that disease is not present and represents a quarantine risk. Uh, but they wanted to clarify that um, it's a temporary um, suspension and those tomatoes will still be exported to countries that don't consider PEPMV a quarantine concern. PEPMV can affect tomato production. It does not present food safety risk or concern to people, um, Mr. Yard, uh, David Yard said from MPI. And in one more piece of slightly tough news, wine producers who are already doing it tough now have another hurdle to face. That's because as of this Thursday, the 1st of July, an additional excise tax of $2.33 per bottle will be added. That means that at approximately $28 per case of 12 wine bottles, the excise take from an average bottle of wine is now more than a grower would get paid for his fruits, a wine industry head said. A major concern with this uh, increase is of course the impact it has on approximately 300 small wineries who only sell in the domestic market Uh, and that was from New Zealand Wine Growers Chief Executive Philip Gregan. They, referring to the small wineries, have already been hit hard by the lack of international tourists post-COVID, surging production costs and the difficulties being experienced in in the hospitality sector. Another winemaker said, I would be happy paying a tax that was directly used in alcohol education or alcohol harm prevention but excise tax is literally going to general government revenue. Hmm. That's a lot of money, isn't it? $2.33 per bottle. That's a, a huge proportion. It sure is. And how timely, given that dry July is just around the corner. 
we'll be talking about that. But meanwhile... The news is brought to you by 1919 Distilling, New Zealand's most innovative distillery and the creator of the world's first pineapple bits gin. They are driven by a mission to bring more transparency and integrity to the spirits industry and now they are taking to Australia. That's right, 1919 Distilling has made it across the Tasman. So be sure to tell your Aussie friends and family to grab a bottle of this award-winning New Zealand gin. Of course, you can order it online at 1919distilling.com, that's 1919distilling.com, or visit your favourite local liquor store. Delightful. Now, last week, the founders managed to get together for a hooey of sorts. That was you, me, and our offsider, Vicky. Uh, we took the opportunity to interview each other a little bit. And so now, here's your chance to kind of listen in as a fly on the wall, as it were, as we interviewed each other a little bit more about the feed. Today's a very good day today because it's the first time that the three founders of the feed have been together. Vicky, Tash, and Vincent. Uh, and we actually have never physically met so we had great dinner last night at mr morris great lovely pretty Com- acceptable pretty good above average well, the good. company was pretty good the company was great the company was great the company was great and this is a rare opportunity to uh, introduce you our listeners to vicky who doesn't has not appeared so far on our podcast so welcome to the show vicky thank you very much where are you from i'm from kirikiriroa or hamilton and you're the founding editor of Nourish magazine, which is a very so, successful magazine. From we've got editions mm. in the Waikato and Bay of Plenty. Fantastic. Uh, I was curious to know now that I've got the two of you in the room, why did you start the feed? Because I am a late comer. You invited me in. Thank you. Very nice. Um, but it why? was really it was a, it was an equality exercise. We felt like we you know really <laughs> should give <laughs> we should give the male perspective you know at least a slice. You were missing the male pale stale component. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Anyway, back to the original question. I'm curious to know, why did you start the feed? Well, like many things in the last year, it started in lockdown. It's kind of like once in band camp. Over a Zoom call. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, and it was, I'd never met Tash beforehand. I'd seen her speak a couple of times, I think. But we never actually, I don't even think we'd have ever had a conversation or anything, had we? No, I don't think so. I don't we, even realise, I can't even remember how we ended up chatting. It was a, during during lockdown, a number of the, we're both members of um, the Food Writers Guild. And during lockdown, the Guild ran a few of these kind of online Zoom sessions, sort of talking about, okay, what are the ways to navigate through this time? Especially there were a lot of food writers and stylists who were mm-hmm. losing, had lost, had lost contracts, had lost jobs. And so it was kind of, we were on a couple of those calls together and I think out of there, both had started to have similar ideas and then just decided, well, we should have a conversation about it. And, and what, you know, what is the need that you identified at the time and has that is that still the need now? Well, the first big question, I think, was we were, we all, we were all asking the question, what happens if none of those food media publications that either were put into hibernation or hiatus, what happens if they don't come back? What happens to the writers who are really talented people? Mm-hmm. Um, but also what happens to the New Zealand food story? What happens to those, uh, yeah, those stories and those methods of communicating? Mm. For me, there was a couple of things. that We'd had a 
conference a year before and I'd been asked to speak because I've been a member of Food Writers for 10 years and the theme of Food Writers losing their jobs has been that for 10 years and probably previous to me being a food writer. And so I sort of sat in during COVID ones and I'd been asked to speak a year before about a similar theme. You know, for me, um, nothing had changed because of COVID. All it did was speed up something that's been happening for quite some time. Mm. And and my um, message, I guess, even pre-COVID was, well, what are you doing about it? You to know, the food writers to themselves. To the food writers. Yeah. You know, like, what are you, you know, with change comes opportunity. And I, as soon as we'd heard about, I mean, that's just kind of the way my brain works a little bit anyway, is is when we'd heard about COVID, pre, not even thinking about um, food writing or thinking that bowel was going to collapse or anything like that. But, you know, even just in the first couple of weeks of COVID, I, the conversation in our household was with every major change, there's opportunity. And this is when people actually come out of the woodwork and become hugely successful. Instead of looking at the doom and gloom, you look at what opportunities mm. are being presented. And so I guess when I sat in on those Zoom meetings with um, the food writers, I was like, come on. We've, you know, like you've been having 10 years or longer lead up to <laughs> some some different ways of looking at it. And, and to be completely frank, food writing in New Zealand is pretty, pretty poor pre-COVID. We write a lot of recipes. Mm. Mm. We don't, for a country that produces a lot of food, we don't talk about it. We don't, we've lost touch with it. That's interesting. And the... From a business point of view, you know, which is kind of my background, the the quality of the analysis around our industry uh, is not as good as it should be. You know, whether mm-hmm. it's whether it's uh, commenting on strategy or on economics or on future or on the role of technology, um, genetics. You know, I I think that to me that's there's a really good opportunity to be to shine some light into New Zealand's biggest and most important industry. And it's a food so all-encompassing, isn't it? It touches everything. It touches our cultural identity. It touches our economic, our political, everything. Yet we don't have people who specialise in writing about food. All we have is recipe writers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that that itself, I think, is challenging. It's challenging for me because I, I feel like it makes the idea of talking about food seem like the dominion of people who have privilege people who have got time to you know experiment with new recipes who have got access to great ingredients who you know have the tools in the kitchen to be able to spend time to you know do the beautiful photo shoots where actually most of us even those of us who are food writers you know our kitchens don't necessarily look as perfect as the ones in the magazines do and that's not to that's not to decry any of that recipe stuff but actually there's just a ton of conversation about food about food security about food systems that doesn't get prices prices that doesn't get much airtime mm. uh, except for you know when we talk about the price of cauliflower and so it, it makes the for me anyway it seems like it seemed like the New Zealand window on what is food writing or what is the food story was very very narrow right when actually it's this deep as you say Vicky it's this deep all-encompassing thing that touches every part of life mm. the the other part of it is that um you know, well, the analogy I used at the time was that for some reason New Zealand knows our top epidemiologists and scientists and things. They've got names and they've got personalities. Well, name the top food writer in New Zealand. Who would you go to ask a question about our food system? Mm. There was no one. 
even amongst the food writers, they couldn't tell you who TVNZ should go to and talk to and ask a question about some sort of food-related issue hmm. other than recipe writers, you know, and recipe writers aren't necessarily knowledgeable about the food system. Yeah. And, then, and then the other part of it is, is we always talk about how removed we are from our food these days. And just because you teach someone to make pasta by hand doesn't mean they know how those eggs got there and where that flour is milled and, you know, why it costs more or why we ran out of flour during lockdown. It wasn't because everyone was baking. It was a packaging issue. You know, like all these things. So we're, so just because people are cooking it doesn't mean they're going to have a connection to their food. So if you took this conversation and said in a year's time we're sitting here and we're looking back and what what would success look like like what are we going to judge ourselves on to say well that was a good effort for you know for the last year what about you Tash what 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 would you say is success for the feed for the feed I think it will be seeing people engaged engaged with the storytelling having a good time laughing at the things that we laugh at and also engaging with some of the bigger ideas that we want to tackle so it will for me it will look like we're contributing stories knowledge education information accessibility of information Mm -hmm. and and understanding to the broader kiwi public and I'd also love to see that that as a result there is actually a, a bit of a trusted voice when it comes to the pieces of our food system that aren't necessarily driven by products or recipes. You know, the pieces that are not about, hey, which restaurant did you go to? Because that stuff's really important and really interesting. I don't I don't want to tear that down in any way, shape or form. I just want to, I would love to see that, hey, in a year's time, we've made a difference to filling in the gap mm. of the stories that don't get told of, you know, the impact of COVID lockdowns on harvesting or, um, you know, how we're changing the way that we grow and harvest and produce food in order to, you know, meet demand, stuff like that. Those stories that, that I think are really interesting, the economic stories their technology stories, their future development stories, and they're really human stories. Yeah, they're human stories. There's a lot of families involved in this business, right? What happens behind those kitchen doors in mm-hmm. that restaurant you like going to? One of the one of my probably one of my recollections from during COVID lockdowns is as we started to emerge from uh, as we started to emerge from lockdown levels and people started to be able to go back to restaurants. I saw somebody on Facebook comment on how uh, comment about how angry they were that they saw people lining up in their cars to go to the local McDonald's when they should have been going to the local cafe and supporting the local business owner. And I was so incensed by that because I thought, man, Kiwi franchise owners who own McDonald's franchises, particularly in small towns up and down the country, are often the people who are sponsoring kids' sports teams. They employ locals. They employ locals. You know, they they contribute so enormously to Mm. local economy. And they are Kiwi-owned businesses. Mm. And I thought, man... This is this is this is happening because somebody doesn't under, doesn't understand right. that actually, uh, you know, the way that food franchises work is mm. no different to the or way supply that, chains. That, where yeah. the where are the lettuces coming from and it, the Angus it, beef steaks? Exactly, they're coming from here, you know. And so this idea that that the some of the ideas we have about how food businesses work are not actually how food businesses work, right? And Imagine how great it would be to go, oh, you know what? I ate a cheeseburger and I might feel guilty about the extra 2Ks I'm going to have to run, but I don't have to feel guilty about where my money went. Hmm. All right, well, that's fixed that problem. So that's Tasha's. What about you? (laughs) 
Ricky, I, what does success look like for the feed for you? Well, a, a little bit. I'd really like we just sat down today and we've sort of brainstormed a lot of, I mean, there's plenty of story ideas and things that we would like covered. But I guess where we got stuck on was who we were going to get to write those stories. Mm. So what I would really, for me, success is us sitting down in a year's time and we'll have six ten times as many stories we want to write because you know we know that there's an appetite for them Mm. and that people just you know really interested and and things like that but we've got just as many people that we know now can write those stories Mm. and have specialized or already come to us and said this is an this this is another story or we have to cover this i want to to be in a position where we've got a a group of talented writers that are out there hungry, looking for opportunities um, to tell all those stories that, I mean, we're only scratching the surface, aren't we? We're looking at the moment because we're just starting. Um, But, you know, there's just... There's so many things under there that we don't even know need to be talked about. Mm. And that's what's exciting. And I think that success for me is that it's not the three of us. We've got this team of people out there um, just ready, willing and able to write that stuff for mm. us. I think, well, I mean, one of the pieces of feedback that that I've heard so many times from, from, from existing food writers, and I'd love to see us be part of the solution to this, is... Uh, that you know there are lots of stories that they've wanted to write over the years but they haven't been able to get them into editorial pages they haven't been able to get them across the line with an editor because you know it hasn't been the specific focus of the publication or there hasn't been ad spend or any of those things so I love the idea that actually we can provide a forum for some of those stories but I also really love the idea that actually by by giving voice, like every conversation opens up a new conversation mm-hmm. and every story is going to open up more and more um, for us to, to engage with some of the depth and the richness of what's going on. Mm. But we should turn the tables, Vincent, because what, what will success look like for you? Uh, well, as you were talking, I was thinking about what matters to me. And uh, one of the things I've always loved about business journalism is um, writing about emerging entrepreneurs innovators, pioneers, people who are giving it a go. And the food industry is just rich with opportunity, but also it's rich with entrepreneurship of mm. young farmers to, you know, trying out different things, family businesses developing brands out of their um, you know, out of out of their own kitchens and so on. I I love telling those stories. And I it's something that I think is happening over the course of my lifetime as a journalist has been this shift from volume to value. And I would love to tell more of those stories of how can we make more from less? And I think there's a particular role here for iwi businesses. And I'm seeing lots of Māori entrepreneurs coming up using assets that they have finally got back to generate really valuable businesses and you think about the Mirakas or uh, Wakatu Corporation and Nelson so many cool businesses that are on this kind of nexus of value how can we find value out of what we make in New Zealand but also very values driven businesses mm. so I love telling those stories and mm. I think in a year's time I would love to have been part of helping them you know succeed is that all right that's great. I was just, you're the interviewer, so I was waiting for the next question. <laughs> I, I think we'd better stop talking and get on with talking to the real people that are making um, food happen in New Zealand. And now for the main course with Vincent Herringer. Thank you, Tash. A few weeks ago, I interviewed Lisa King, the founder of Eat My Lunch, about her big year in 2020. 
topped off by winning a contract to deliver 18,000 free school lunches every day. What we didn't mention at the time was that that year she also launched AF Drinks, an alcohol-free gin and tonic that she created after being frustrated she couldn't find a non-alcoholic alternative while recovering from vertigo. In the second part of the interview with Lisa, I quizzed her about exactly how you emulate the flavour of gin in a non-alcoholic gin drink. Mm. Interesting. Uh, Also the challenge of getting a non-spirit spirit onto the shelves in supermarkets and in liquor stores. And also why she's so excited about sobriety in general and kind of appropriate in uh, dry July that we should have such an interview. I'm talking with Lisa King as if she didn't have enough to do. She's also launched a beverage brand, AF Drinks. Uh, I'm assuming that AF stands for alcohol-free. Is that, am I assuming correct? Or is it actually AF Drinks in itself, Lisa? Uh, yes, that's correct. It stands for alcohol-free. Um, obviously, you know, there's a popular meme <laughs> with those letters. And we kind of wanted to play on that a bit because this is a brand that, you know, has a bit of attitude um, and is really confident and um, is, you know, a bit of fun in a space that can be seen as quite serious. I can't believe when I read that you had done this, I thought, God, you're the Energizer Bunny. You don't stop. I mean, you've already uh, won this big government contract for Eat My Lunch as well as going through uh, a big COVID change uh, around your business. But what, what is the motivation? What's, where, does, where is this coming from? I, 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 am I right in thinking that you are not a drinker yourself? Yeah, well, um, I started getting uh, a couple of bouts of vertigo, funnily enough, at the uh, start of last year. And um, and I realised that every time I had vertigo, I had had a gin and tonic. Um, and so I thought I'd just stop drinking for a little bit and see if that would help. And what I kind of quickly found was that it was actually a lot harder than I thought to stop drinking. And really because of the fact that, you know, it's such a strong part of the Kiwi culture here. And if you tell people you're not drinking, you just feel like a bit of a social outcast. <laughs> or, you know, they start asking you questions like, you know, are you pregnant? Or, you know, they look at you like you've got some major problem. <laughs> um, and then the other thing was, I, you know, I just would go out, um, you know, whether it's to bars, restaurants or events, and there were just never any good non-alcoholic options. Um, there was like water, juice, or a sugary soft drink. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. and it just kind of really surprised me because I, you know, I'd read and seen that this was a bit of a trend overseas um, and that there should be um, better alcohol-free options than what is currently available. Um, and I'm not a beer drinker either. So that kind of, you know, the 0% beers weren't really an option for me. Mm. So I also then, you know, did a lot more research around alcohol. And I think we all know that we should drink less um, and that that's better for us. But I was actually quite shocked at the impact that alcohol actually has, um, not just on us individually, but obviously, you know, on wider society, mm. such as drunk driving you know, domestic violence um, and mental wellness. And so it kind of just made sense to me 
that you know there was this problem that needed to be addressed and that if we could actually encourage more people to go alcohol free not necessarily be completely um, sober all the time but to have kind of more alcohol free moments in their lives um, that you know we could actually start creating or moving our way towards um, a better kind of healthier society um, that is less reliant on alcohol. Mm. So it's as as much purpose-driven as eat my lunches. It comes from a place of concern about a bigger issue than just selling more drinks. Absolutely. Look, I wouldn't have done it if it was just really about selling another drink. Um, you know, for me, like you say, I've got enough on my plate. So, um, you know, for me to do something and invest a lot of time and effort into it, it has to be um, making a positive difference um, in the world somehow. And I really believe that AF can do that. Now, the way that we're um, choosing to tackle this isn't, you know, your traditional you know, fear messages around how bad alcohol for you is for you and that you need to stop. We're actually trying to do it in a really positive way, which is to make not drinking, you know, really fun and sexy and aspirational and to tell stories of successful people who have, you know, a better relationship with alcohol. And so um, while, and also to provide, you know, really great alternatives because it's one thing, to get people to go, yeah, I'm going to go alcohol-free, and then for them to not be able to find something to replace, um, you know, their normal drink in the occasion. Well, as you say, the alternatives have either been sugary soft drinks, which make you feel ill after your third glass, or beer, low-alcohol beer, which you know, is always disappointing, I think, as a beer drinker, mm-hmm. um, or water. Um, so the alternatives have been poor. And so your emphasis is really not about not drinking. It's about providing viable, interesting alternatives, including in your marketing, you you have quite an emphasis on role modeling. Yeah, I think, um, you know, my what would make AF successful is if I can walk into a supermarket and, you know, where alcohol is in the supermarket, that there are at 50% of the space is allocated to really good alcohol-free options so that people have the choice. And what we know is that, um, particularly overseas, people are drinking alcohol and non-alcoholic drinks in the same occasion. And so it's about it's more about moderation rather than giving up alcohol altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, what success would be for me is going to a bar or a restaurant and that alcohol-free options are as prominent as alcohol options. You know, when you actually think about it, it doesn't really make sense for, um, you know, the places we go to so often, like supermarkets and restaurants, to be promoting a toxin um, and (laughs) hiding, you know, the only other alternatives at some back page or, you know, you have to actually ask for it. Um, So, you know, that's kind of what, Long term, I would really like to see the changes in society move towards Mm. Um, and to use people that, you know, are inspirational and successful. I mean, I was really surprised when I found out, you know, about all these celebrities that don't drink, like your Pharrell Williams and um, Anthony Hopkins and Jennifer Lopez and, 
Blake Lively, you know, all these really great successful people who don't use alcohol um, to fuel their lifestyle or their success. And it's almost like they've discovered the secret, you know, which is that they don't need it to be themselves and um, to enjoy life and have fun. Was there a common factor between all of those people? Obviously, hugely successful on an international scale. Are they just too busy to be drinking or is there a health element to it? Um, A lot of it is driven by health and, you know, we're seeing a massive trend um, towards that, particularly with um, younger, like millennials, that they don't want to compromise their health, um, you know, just to have a good night. And they think they know that they can actually have fun and have a good night out without alcohol. Um, So I think, you know, there's definitely a big drive towards health and understanding, you know, what alcohol does to you. Um, You know, there's particularly for women, there's an increased risk of breast cancer. Even if you don't drink a lot, um, just having, you know, one alcoholic drink a day can increase the risk of breast cancer by something like 25%. You know, it's linked to like 200 diseases. Um, And, you know, obviously drink driving. um, I think also it's just when you drink, you think, you know, a lot of people use alcohol to gain confidence. um, But actually alcohol kind of dilutes who you really are. And, you know, you're not 100% yourself when you're Mm. drinking. And I'm sure all of us have an example of a night you know, where you probably can't remember what you're doing or you've embarrassed yourself or, you know, I don't think we anyone will ever say that when they're drunk, you know, that they're the best versions of themselves. I, I would deny any knowledge <laughs> of such an event or such an occasion, Lisa. Um, all of these people that you've just mentioned, you know, being high performers, that performance is, at one level, it's enhanced by alcohol because it does lower ambition, inhibitions and it does give you confidence in so far as perhaps you don't think through all of the consequences. And so, you know, it's easier to sing at, at a karaoke when you've had a few. <laughs> but um, what you're suggesting is that these high performers are saying, actually, I don't need that to perform. And in, and in fact, the debilitating effect of alcohol affect my performance in the long term, particularly yeah. the next day? I think, you know, it's a um, James who works on AEF with me, you know, he also stopped drinking last year. And it wasn't because he had a problem or anything, but he just wanted to know what it was like to operate at 100% all the time rather than at 75 80%, you know, most of the time. Mm-hmm. And I think it's almost this is what these people might have discovered is that, you know, alcohol does slow you down. Um, it affects your ability to think and or think clearly, you know, it affects your physical and mental performance. And so without it, you know, you can operate at 100%. Um, and I certainly found that last year, you know, when I wasn't drinking, it was an incredibly stressful time, um, particularly, you know, with eat my lunch and lockdowns. And I th- felt like I handled the stress a lot better and I was way calmer than I normally would be um, if, you know, I had been drinking. Hmm. Um, And so, you know, and you sleep better, you have way more energy. 
So the benefits of it are really clear. You're far too sensible to talk to. This is, um, I'm starting to feel <laughs> uncomfortable now, Lisa King. Um, There's no so, judgment. <laughs> no judgment. That's good. And, um, and, uh, you have said on multiple occasions it's not about being um, you know, 100% free unless that's your choice, but you're suggesting that let's mix it up. Yeah, just, um, you know, I think a lot of people are doing that already. You know, there are people that won't drink during the week and only in the weekends or, you know, people who do a month off or, you know, dry July. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think we can all kind of start reducing it um, in our lives um, you know there's definitely some occasions I still have you know a small glass of wine like on special occasions but when I do I really appreciate it hmm. um, and I'm really mindful of it so yeah more. that's probably what I'm su- suggesting more is just um, you know being more mindful when you are drinking and looking at how you can have a healthier relationship with alcohol all right. Well, let, tell us about what the drinks are made of, because um, you know at least one of the reasons to continue drinking wine and spirits and beer is because it just tastes so great, and it is very hard to replace that delicious sensation, the richness, the diversity, the contrast, the explosions of flavours that you get with uh, alcoholic drinks. So, tell us about how you tackled that challenge of meeting that kind of taste profile with something that didn't have alcohol in it yeah you're absolutely right Vincent like when you take alcohol out of something it loses the texture the depth and the mouthfeel um it also loses a lot of (laughs) (laughs) so um you know I wanted to make a drink um and this is just before the first lockdown last year I, I called up a flavor house and I said to them, look, I want to create this alcohol-free gin and tonic because that was my drink and the one mm. that I was missing. And I said, so I want you to just make it taste like a freshly made G&T, but obviously with no alcohol and just using natural flavors. Um, and flavor technology, you know, is really incredible um, these days. And so they were able to you know, mimic all of the, like, get botanicals in there and, um, you know, the tonic flavours and the citrus. And so bringing all of those flavours together, we've created something that's really complex. You know, so this isn't just a flavoured sparkling water. Mm. We really wanted to get the layers of complexity that you'd normally get with a G&T. But then, you know, we you drink something because it tastes good, but with alcohol, you're also drinking it for the feeling of drinking and so we found a um, natural botanical extract that we call afterglow and it gives you a little burn as you're drinking it so like you're drinking a spirit and it actually mimics that warmth that alcohol gives you and so when I drink this you know um, like after a while my cheeks start warming up and you know I can kind of feel in my ears and um, and you feel like you've been drinking. And so I think that's what makes, you know, AF really unique and distinctive. Mm. Um, interestingly, we did a blind tasting of AF against um, like Bombay, Tanqueray and Gordon's and they're ready to drink GNTs. And the uh, New Zealand Herald reporter that we did this tasting with actually picked AF as the booziest one of the lot. Hilarious. 
yeah, which was amazing and um, awesome. So I think, um, you know, we've definitely tried to replicate not just the taste but the experience um, of, you know, an alcoholic drink, obviously without the alcohol. I know you've got a, a dedicated group of fans, but how has it been received by the trade? It's been, um, you know, we're one of the first ones in this category. And, uh, you know, even like with Eat My Lunch, when you're first <laughs> or you're kind of pioneering something new, it comes with its own set of challenges. Um, so there's no natural space for this in retail or in supermarkets. Um, so, you know, there's definitely been a bit of work trying to convince people um, about the need for it. Do you, by, also, by space, do you mean it's neither a soft drink nor a spirit nor a wine? So finding it hard to, to find a natural place in the aisle? Yeah, um, with supermarket regulations, um, we can't go in the alcohol section. Oh. And, yeah, and also it's not a soft drink. And so um, it's just been, you know, quite tricky kind of navigating that. And I think, you know, there's also um, consumers, they might go to the alcohol section to look for something like this. Um, so, but at the moment, um, for example, in some of the retailers, we are with the beverages and like the premium tonics. And in some retailers, we sit just outside of the wine section. So mm. it's difficult when, you know, for a consumer to go and find us in a supermarket. So there's a bit of education to be done and potentially, you know, revisiting of legislation that was made without thinking that there would be alcohol-free alternatives like this coming onto the market. Mm. And, and how about um, on-premise? Yeah, I mean, last year, obviously, you know, being on-premise in bars and restaurants was difficult. Mm. Um, Great with, timing. Yeah, with lockdown. So our focus hasn't been on that. Um, we've really just tried to make it as widely available and accessible through supermarkets, um, liquor stores, and also on our online um, site. So we're in about 240 stores at the moment um, throughout New Zealand. And hopefully um, increasing that quite quickly in the next couple of months. Hmm. I mean, that's an impressive start, isn't it? From when did you launch in September uh, last year, around about? End of November, start of hmm. December. So yeah, okay. we've been in the market for about five months now. Well, that's that's an impressive start. But it kind of it hints to me that as a category, this feels like the beginning of something and I was uh, in if you do a quick google search and you look for non-alcoholic drinks there is a, a, a veritable explosion in the category overseas do you feel like you're at the vanguard of a movement yeah absolutely I kind of feel like you know this could be in terms of the product itself it could be the next kombucha you know um no one knew what kombucha was when it first came mm. on the market um, and now, you know, there's so many players and the category is massive. Mm. Um, so, you know, we definitely can see from overseas the trend is growing hugely. Um, last year, globally, 30% of people, um, you know, stopped or reduced their drinking. And um, we've seen three this. Zero. Three zero. Yeah, one in wow. three. And we've seen this category globally become about 3% of total alcohol. Hmm. Um, so, you know, if you took that 
into New Zealand terms, 3% of the alcohol market here would make this a $45 million category. Mm. And so how much of that can you can you, uh, you know, occupy and do you worry about competitors coming and following on your coattails? Yeah, I think, you know, there's definitely, we are going to see more players in this category and that's good for the category because we need it to grow. And so people need to have more options. And so you're seeing, you know, lots of alcohol-free wines and, you know, more beers coming onto the market. Um, And I think giving people lots of different options will bring more people into the category. Mm. Um, And so, yeah, it'll be great to see a few more players enter. Um, Obviously, being one of the first, you know, we want to be established as the leaders in this category. And, you know, we're also working on other options at the moment outside of G&Ts because um, not everyone loves a gin and tonic. Mm, I'm um, sure that you must have a product pipeline. Have you got anything you can tell us about that? Uh, yeah, well, for winter, we're moving into more dark spirits versions, um, AF versions. So, yeah, I think, you know, that's a good kind of wintry and a bit more probably masculine skews, mm-hmm. um, whereas the Make- GNTs are quite, you know, feminine <laughs> at the moment, so... Yeah, that makes sense. And it does make me think, you know, so many uh, innovations start as a similar to, uh, so, you know, the the impossible burger meat, alternative meat started out very much as, well, it's a bit like chicken or it's a bit like beef. But over time, these things established themselves as their own category. And kombucha probably started as a, it's a little bit like ginger beer. It's a little bit like beer. But now it's its own, it's a whole own category, isn't it? Can you see a time when you would stop needing to compare yourself to a spirit and just say, we are what we are? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, for us, it was important to not take too big of a leap for consumers. Um, And, you know, to actually reference it back to something that's familiar. Because Mm. just people getting their heads around the fact that there is no alcohol in it. Um, it's also been a small challenge. You know, there's people like, why? Why would you buy this if it's got no alcohol? <laughs> um, you know, why so, do you exist? Yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, being able to reference something familiar um, was our strategy moving into this category and trying to get, you know, people into it. Mm. And there will be a time, hopefully in the near future, where we can just be really great, you know, adult alcohol-free drinks so um and create our own so yeah there's definitely a plan to do that but yeah, okay. for the time being, you know we want to take people on a bit of a journey and make them feel comfortable about this space yeah that makes so much sense so uh here's the rude question to ask in church but um does it make a, a decent mixer for actual gin and tonic <laughs> a lot of people have said, you know, this would be great with gin in it. <laughs> or, um, feel free to, you know, it's an expensive mixer. Um, but <laughs> feel free. And, uh, you know, the um, it's been, you know, one of the questions too is like, well, why would you pay, you know, a premium price for something with no alcohol in it? And it's just been really fascinating, you know, the learnings that we've had over the last few months that, you know, it, when you really think about it, it doesn't make sense for us to place value in the 
bit that goes into it that's actually a poison for our bodies. Mm. Um, yeah, and so, um, you know, again, we're trying to change people's mindsets here and, you know, educate them, and that's the job of being a leader in this category. I presume, uh, just quickly, you're not paying any tax on the uh, alcohol component because there is no alcohol. Yep, we're not. Um, so it's one of the brilliant things and also why we can be in a supermarket Yeah, uh, sure. because supermarkets can't sell spirits. Fantastic. Lisa King, it's such a delight talking to you. Wish you all the best for this. If people want to find out more, how do they find the product and how do they find you online? Yeah, so we're at afdrinks.com and uh, you can purchase online or we've got all of our stockists online. And what really helps is also if you ask for us at your local supermarket and try and get them to stock it. Good advice. Lisa, thanks for joining us on the feed. So it is Dry July starting on the 1st, that's this Thursday, and there has been a bit of a theme recently um, emerging both globally and at home about what we call no or low drinking. Uh, We spoke with Anthony Burt from East Imperial a couple of weeks ago about their new wellness range, not to mention another, uh, a number of other brands that will be looking to have kind of a boomer month over dry July, which is typically when people stop drinking in order to raise money for a number of different cancer-supporting charities. Mm. Mm. Will you be doing dry July, Vincent? I No, uh, I won't be. <laughs> uh, but I might try dry July, which I think is, that's also legit, right? You know, uh, I already have tried to reduce my alcohol consumption by, you know, eliminating certain days of the week. Mm-hmm. M- mostly just to assert my myself over my habits and you know whether it's alcohol or whether it's other things you know so i think it's it's good to be in control of you know whatever goes into your mouth so i i think uh, dry july is a good idea particularly since i suppose you know we have had a binge drinking culture in the past in new zealand and as we get more sophisticated with our palates maybe being able to exercise control uh, is a message that we all need to hear So my viewpoint is possibly a little more controversial on this one. I understand the merits of Dry July in terms of people taking the opportunity to sacrifice something in order to donate to a good cause, in order to be charitable. I mean, that's kind of an ancient tradition. It's been around for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Catholicism. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what I wrestle with, particularly at the moment, is the idea that, um, that somehow it's more virtuous to take a month off which is really just another form of binging. Mm-hmm, I guarantee mm-hmm. that most people actually will replace their alcohol consumption with some other form of activity, right? Uh, so so I have a little bit of an issue with that, but I also have an issue with uh, actually what a massive impact it can be on some of the small businesses, particularly hospitality venues, that actually do sometimes see a very substantial drop-off during dry July. Now, I'm not sure that that's going to happen this year. I think that COVID-19 in 2020 certainly uh, shifted the gears a little bit on the way that we drink we drink more at home we order more spirits in that sort of thing but generally speaking I'm a fan of moderation and I'm a fan of understanding what you're putting into your body and drinking better not necessarily drinking Mm. more Mm. but I'm also not necessarily a fan of drinking less and partly that's because of what you just said about New Zealand's binge culture which is actually not true it It is is true we have had a long history of binge drinking and According, it, it but well on what changing. scale? 
on what scale? On what scale? Historically, we are one of the lowest ranked in the OECD for alcohol consumption on any binge. And that's something that the anti-alcohol lobby won't tell you. But we will dive into those numbers in future because I see that your curiosity is peaked. It is peaked. But I also think it fits into a bigger trend, which is, you know, we have we've now reached abundance. You know, in the first world, developed world, we live with so much choice. With, so, with supermarket shelves that are just groaning with choice. And I think there's a big shift coming in not so much people denying themselves as uh, learning to manage choice and, you know, choosing, maybe it's choosing A over B, but maybe it's also choosing not A. And I think that the discipline that we're going to have to learn as a species, now we'll get philosophical and we haven't even started drinking, <laughs> uh, is learning to manage abundance. How are we going to manage abundance without just sort of bloating ourselves? Well, and again, that's a question that only applies to certain sectors and groups within society, right? And also to the problem m- of modern s- consumerist societies that have the blessing of choice and access to markets and Absolutely. so on. Yeah. The burden the burden of discipline that falls to the privileged. Huh. Right? Yeah. Hmm. Let me tell you about it sometime. <laughs> complex philosophical issues okay so what we've established is that neither of us are doing dry july but i have in fact ordered a box of af drinks july 31 pack so 31 cans of their uh delicious non-alcoholic beverages which i'm going to try for the first time and let's see if if i can be converted well we don't know if they're delicious i have tried them and they're they're pretty good all right we shall look forward to your expert we'll we'll do a we'll do a blind tasting perhaps next week okay (laughs) What happened in 1887, Tash? Uh, this I love. Um, the Speaking of non-alcoholic, uh, Coca-Cola syrup and extract were patented for the first time in 1887. Huh. And then just over 100 years later, this fascinated me. The longest trial in Spanish history ended after 15 months in 1988. It was the poisoned olive oil trial. Mm. There were 1,500 witnesses questioned to help decide who was responsible for poisoning over 25,000 Spaniards in the toxic olive oil case. More than 600 people died from cheap olive oil and thousands more left partially paralysed or suffering from other ailments in one of the worst public health disasters in modern history. And it was the first I'd ever heard of it when I looked it up. How about that? You thought the Spanish flu was bad. Uh, And that is the Feed Weekly. Thank you, and we will see you on social or next week. Ciao.